Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, what we're proposing to do this afternoon is on this question, um, growing when you cannot buy or sell, is if someone has a question, please come up to the microphone because we want this to be recorded. And the panel who will answer the discussion, who will answer these questions are you. Okay, so if you have some answers for these questions, I'm going to start out with some questions and basic thoughts on, on things, but if you have some answers, if they're, if they're short, you can probably just say them and then I can repeat them so it can be recorded, but uh, the microphone here is for answers if you've, you know, thought these things out. Well, I'd first like to begin with prayer. Lord... You're the one who has told us how history is going to unfold. How there's going to become a time for your faithful people where they cannot buy and sell. A form of retaliation for them not giving in to the beast and his economy that he has set up. So Lord, we ask now that you guide us and give us wisdom on how to prepare for this time that as we, are, as we follow your counsel, we can be blessed even through this trying time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, as I thought about this question here, um, I thought of some problems that we would run into. And this is, you know, how are you going to be growing things when you cannot buy or sell? These are some of the problems we're going to face. Uh, what are you going to do for fertilizer? How many now buy their fertilizer? Okay, so that's uh, something that needs to be considered. What are you going to do when you cannot buy seed? How many now buy their seed? Different types of seed. And what are you going to do when you, can't, when you aren't able to have access to fuel to irrigate? Whether it's to pump your water up out of your well... Or, or irrigation equipment parts you can't get? And what are you going to do um, for uh, tilling? Now, how many have uh, tilling equipment that requires fuel? And so these are important questions. Now, for farmers, um, they need to really take this in hand, and that is, who's going to buy your food? It's going to be illegal for you to sell anything. So you may have a farming operation, but, you know, unless you want to be thrown in jail for selling, it's against the law for you to do so. So basically, I see this here as a problem that's going to have to be dealt with by households. Because most of us will know and have followed the counsel that we need to be out in the country and not living where prying eyes can see what you're doing. Um, a good example of this is if you ever read anything about communist China and uh, um, how the people just spied on each other. Russia was the same way. The people spied on each other. This is why we're giving counsel to be out in the country where there's not prying eyes to see what you're doing. 
Okay, um, now I want to address answers to these questions first, okay? Because they exist. But I would, I would uh, guess that most of you are very unfamiliar with the answers. Um, who fertilized the prairies, the forests, the shrubland, when they, su when they supplied food for, say, the prairies, 120 million bison, great herds of antelope and elk, great colonies of prairie dogs? Who provided for the passenger pigeons the, the fruit and seeds that they eat when the flocks were so intense that they would blot out the sun for a few days when they would fly and move across the United States? So if they were well-fed, God has in place a system. And so let's consider who reseeded the prairies, who reseeded all the trees, the nut trees, the uh, fruit trees that provided food for all these animals throughout North America. We're here in North America, but anywhere on the earth. Who provided all the seeds to replant? And how were they successfully replanted so that they continued to feed these vast, vast herds and flocks? Who irrigated it all? We have some dry country. And, well, you can see Texas right here where we are with the stunted trees. How is it that they, here in Texas, had vast herds of animals, well-supported? Who did the irrigation? How did this irrigation system work that God had established and established well here? It's a system we've highly damaged. Okay, so, and the, just to, to, to address that for a moment, the Oglala Sioux Reservoir, not, 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 I guess it's Oglala, Oglala Sioux is the name of the Indian, but the Oglala Reservoir, which stretches through many of these states here, is an underground reservoir, and when they first tapped into it, they were only pulling up water for irrigation from 200 feet. I hear now it's down to like 600 feet, and it's almost not profitable to irrigate because the water's so far down. Why isn't it replenishing itself? What has been done to the soil surface that it doesn't catch the rain, but instead it washes off and runs off in torrents, carrying the topsoil with it? And who tilled all of this land. Who tilled this land for these crops that were produced every year? Okay, so this gives us some idea of the answers we're looking for. If God has an agricultural program, and he does, and we appear to be very far from it, um, it's possible that the answers lie for this table here, this panel here, is right back learning his system. Okay, does um, anyone have a question? Come on up here and here's the microphone. I was just giving you a general idea of how I see things as, as a solution. No questions. Must have some questions on
the question I have for you, we're all concerned about the same thing, right? What should be our top priority in preparing? That's what I would like to ask. What should be our top priority? But prepare for what? Answers? You're the panel that gives the answers. Yes, go ahead. I would just like to say the first thing that crossed my mind was water. I mean, forget about your crops and all that. You're not going to last very long without water. And uh, I can just share with you that, uh, and I don't know, some of you may live by a lake or you may have a spring or something. Uh, most of us have wells, I think, that live in the country. Uh, and some of us, uh, the Lord bless us with a shallow well. So I can just share with you what we did. Uh, we were able to find a pump that uh, we uh, plumbed. I replumbed it so that uh, we could shut off our uh, electric pump and we could pump into our pressure tank and uh, still have pressurized water into our home so that, uh, you know, you don't have to carry a bucket of water into your house to do. So you have a, a hand pump attached? A hand pump, and uh, it was... It and was, how shallow is the well? It, it was only 12 to 16 feet yeah. for our water. Uh, now, that doesn't always work. You, if you have a, a lot of wells are deeper than that, so you, you have to think about that. You'll, you would need a more expensive, different type of hand pump if you had a deep well. And so many things to consider, but... Uh, Water has to be one of the top priorities, if not the top, I would, I would believe. So. Okay, and th there's some, yes? Put it, I'll put the speaker right here. Easier for the camera to. Uh... Um, you know, I always thought dry land is dry land, and it's going to be dry land. It doesn't have water. It doesn't have water. And then... I read this article about someone down in Texas here who made the springs start to flow again. And I thought, now, nah, how could you do that? That just shocked me when I read that. And so, but as I become more interested in permaculture, I find that that's going on world, worldwide now. God's design is that the higher elevations would be planted up with vegetation. Uh, if you're going to do agriculture, be usually on the lower, lower pieces of ground. And when the higher pieces of ground have vegetation, woods on them, whatever, whether it's shrubland or whatever, then they start working on the ground. And they make the ground friable by the dropping of their leaves and all the uh, microbes and critters in the soil, insects and worms and everything that start tilling that soil and keep it so well tilled that when it rains, the waters go in. They don't run off. And when they go in, then they start to come out as springs and as creeks. And in the areas like in Ethiopia, where they've done this and the other African countries, the springs and the streams have started to run again in areas that were just places where people used to starve. There was not the water. 
So this is something, this is a preparation for that day. It is a, it's the theme of our conference here, restoring the waste places. You see, all ground is to be covered. You've heard that, probably seen that movie, Back to Eden, and how important the covering is. That covering is what causes the waters to be able to go in and not flow off and to be able to keep them from evaporating back out of it. So that's something we need to consider. We as a people should be demonstrating to the world, not the permaculturalists, how to restore the waste places. So consider planting up. Make sure everything is planted up. Um, Jeff Lawton, who uh, is, has the trademark of permaculture, um, went to the Dead Sea region. It was about two kilometers from the Dead Sea and planted in that salt land that was so salty you couldn't grow agricultural crops. Uh, Planted in it, mulched in it, drip irrigated it for three years and then they shut the project down. Six years later, the whole place is flourishing. The pomegranates, the figs, the different fruit trees were all growing now. And not only that, the salted land that had been wasted, couldn't grow anything on, was now producing food. So God has a design, and we have to learn that design. And that design is to keep the land covered with plants at all times. So that that can address something as a preparation for, for water. Does anyone have any more questions? I just thought I'd add that to the water situation. Any more questions, please? Well, you know, you really don't need that much land as we have gone over, planted to supply your needs. Like half an acre some people use to commercially grow on. So if you take and use raised beds, raise it up about 18 inches or so, put some soil in there, and then grow in those raised beds, you're fine. How do we plant on that elevation so we can... That rocky elevation? Yeah, Yeah. so we can get water to be absorbed. That's my question. The Australians have a deficiency of water, and they came up with what they call... um, wicking worm beds where you go down you dig um, below the grade now if you got rocks you go down to that rocky level you put a a, like a bathtub of six mil plastic and you bring those edges up along the edge of your raised bed so all the water you put in stays there and then they have a little uh, pipe that comes out that, you know, if you get excess water, it will drain out. But you can get by on very little. My son just built one. And uh, it's working out great. They're called wicking worm beds. You can look them up on YouTube. And uh, so it's a, it's a way that you get by on very little water and can grow. 
Um, as to planting on rocks, I, my property is a, an earthquake fault, and it's a talus slope from the cliffs that broke down, and they're, they're, they were covered with trees. It's, it's Connecticut, and Connecticut is not a dry country, even though it, it suffered droughts this year uh, because the whole earth is being so disturbed because of the removal of its plant cover. It's affecting even the rainy areas, but these rocky slopes, uh, I plant them. I plant grapes and trees there, fruit trees, and I just sort of pull rocks apart and uh, this loose talus, keep pulling it apart until I get myself a couple handfuls of soil. And then I put the roots there and I take a bucket of uh, composted soil from elsewhere and then I mulch it very heavily with leaves, this area. And uh, these rocky slopes, um, they do have trees on it, and they do find the water through the rocks somehow. And they do have grapevines on it, and they find the water through the rocks. So when I do that, I may lose half of what I plant. But uh, this year they've been uh, doing well, and they produced quite well. Um, and they've, they've found the water. So it takes a while for the roots to get down. But these areas, that well that you have, 12 feet deep, that has no water in it, there were trees over that property, probably on those rocks, and that was collecting water. And that's why that well was dug only 12 feet, because there was water enough at 12 feet to supply their needs. It's just that all around it, that soil that had been collecting the water is now uncovered. And so the sun bakes it and uh, the rains run off. Okay, do we have other questions? Okay, I'm brand new at all this stuff, and we're looking for land right now, and I'm wondering how much land you need to feed, a, like, a family of four. Growing all your own food. How much land to feed a family of four? Anyone want to answer that? I can say right off the bat, it depends on how productive the ground is. For instance, when I put my corn in, the first thing I do when I plant it is I see how far apart I have to space it. And the first year I grow it, and if the, the ears don't fill out to the top, I have to space it farther. I know that in the uh, southwestern deserts, they grow a desert corn, and they plant it like one stalk, three foot by three foot. I mean, they've got the land... They just don't have the water, but these corns are adapted to grow in that environment. The Hopi blue corn and uh, there's other things. There are plants adapted to grow in very, very dry environments. And so you need to, this, this now is addressing seeds. You need to get the seeds that will grow in your environment. Seeds that produce food and then learn how to grow them, what the spacing is that you'll need in order to grow them. Well, I think that um, we didn't really answer the question about how much land for a family, although we did talk about it, but it's not very much, 
um, as far as acres, depending on what crops you grow. <clears throat> uh, like root crops, like sweet potatoes or potatoes, produce a lot of food for per amount of square area, you know, or area. But um, we, especially my generation, is so far removed from working with horses and things that it's like a complete, complete other world. You know, it's it's. It's hard enough to do agriculture without horses. <laughs> I think I think it'd be harder to do it with horses. <laughs> I'd probably get kicked and you know something. You know, <laughs> when I was on a Dysinger horse, I was a Dysinger farm. I was helping lead their horses into the barn one time, and I got smashed into the wall of their barn. <laughs> and uh, so, but um, I think if you can get fruit trees or perennial tree. Plants established, you can get fruit or food from that year after year without needing to replant them, and possibly use you know an animal or something. And then if you have uh, if you kind of use the a bed system of growing things, you don't have to. You can use like a broad fork or something to loosen the soil. You don't have to particularly do that deep, you know, plowing every year. So uh, I don't I don't think that you have to have a horse. If you if you know how to use a horse and you want to do several acres, you know, go ahead. But I don't think it's it's I don't think it's a necessity. That that's my thought. I want to continue that point for just a minute, address your question a little bit better because uh, I want to bring into what the spirit of prophecy says and what uh, uh, Mrs. White said when she was in California, she had two acres. Two acres. Now, she had a lot of younger help. They were planting the trees by the Ellen White method. The, f the fruit trees were very profitable, uh, very productive. And uh, so I wanted to tell you that much. Uh, I also think, in, in my personal opinion, if I had a ton of land, how would I be able to work all of that? Because you, you brought up the, uh, <clears throat> the mention of fuel. We may be able to stock a little bit of it, but... Uh, to be able to keep running long term with the fuel, it just it doesn't seem very practical, practical to me. And uh, so, so I, I'm prepared to just work as much as I can with hand tools. Don't have to worry about any cost of anything. So, and uh, some of us may be older, can't do that. Uh, <clears throat> I'm getting up there, I know. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's. Uh, I think we should try to resort to as much of the natural means that uh, people did for 5,000 years before they were, there was all this uh, modern stuff uh, because people survived for a long time before all this uh, technology came along. So. We, we, uh, moved from the, we just moved from the California last year and a place right now and the somebody placed property here. We don't know what, we just impressed to move out and uh, from the country, in a uh, city. What place we are, and uh, the garden we are doing, and uh, it was so compact soil. And uh, my husband, Chile, the first time was uh, so compact. Then it's rain and flood and rain and flood. And, and then it, it just, we planted and then we bought a bear in a yellow seed, all gone. And then we plant, 
keep flooding and raining and losing up, then go, go, the, go down, down the drain and with the creeks, what's up? I just keep crying, Lord. We don't have much, you know, what we got, and then this is, you know, so much, you know. The fourth time, and then we did that, and I was just, but Lord, this is a last, last seat. <laughs> I, I was just crying and planning, and I, you know, we did using, you know, hose, you know, digging and all kinds of stuff, you know, which is hard work, and you know. I was trying my best, Lord, and I, this is. Um, our best, we try to give that our best. My husband is saying, well, if the Lord wants us to have, and he will bless. And then, Lord, sure enough, you know, rain was, you know, not much rain, was it was so much rain in this year, and his land stopped, you know. And uh, after that, we got uh, plenty of uh, fruit, and God has given us, and I have, uh, I can a lot, I sold a, lot, a little bit, and I share a lot. So I want to show some of the food that I had. God has blessed us with that. Um, in answer to the question of how much land would I need, in college I was a student missionary at Kibidula Farms in Tanzania, and the agriculture school I worked at, all the students were subsistence farmers while they were at the school. So each student had one acre of land, and they'd raise corn, beans. Um, they raised sunflower seeds to press for oil. Then they had a large vegetable garden. Um, <clears throat> and then coupling that with banana trees and the avocado trees because of the tropical climate, um, they were able to grow all the food. And they even fed me with it. I didn't work in their gardens. I worked on another farm project. Um, so, I don't know, I've never tried to be a subsistence farmer. We do crop farming, um, but I know with one acre of land per person, they were able to eat a simple meal um, and year-round, um, just with the corn and beans. Oh, and on the horse. Uh, I found out this week that pressing sorghum, we did our first test run for sorghum molasses, and the horse made it a lot easier. And they eat mostly grass. They won't be fat on grass, but if you have prairie land like we do. Okay, yes. Um, if you want to learn how to eat all year round with plenty of food, you need to talk to this lady right here. She's too modest to come up and talk, but she can give you a wealth of information. She's been doing this since she's been a teenager, and she says you can get all the food you need through the dead of winter. And this is all over the United States, right? Pretty much? Yeah, pretty much. She's um, the expert. The Lord heard my prayer because as I was um, listening, my heart was almost beating out of my chest because I was like, Lord, I need to share this with them. And so... Believe it or not, Linda, I said, if Linda says something to me, I'll get up. <laughs> so when you started talking, I'm like, okay, Lord, I heard you. Um, basically, as, as Linda said, I have been, since I was a teenager, uh, for 40-something years now, teaching. Well, actually, I started off as a hobby, learning about wild edible plants. And I started out, some of you may know her name initially was Miriam Darnell. Anybody familiar with that name? And then she remarried, uh, and her name was Miriam Kramer. 
Anyway, she's the one, I had her book, it's called Edible Wild Plants, something, it was in the Pathfinder thing, and at the age of 15 or 16, I started studying on my own. This was my own personal hobby. I never, ever planned to share it with anyone because, you know, we used to talk about 40 years ago about time of trouble and getting prepared and when you can't buy and sell, and that's what um, gave me the courage to do it. Well, I moved to Huntsville, Alabama in 81, met my husband, we started, you know, we found that we both love nature, and from that we started working with Pathfinders. And I think we worked with Pathfinders for about 10 years, we became conference coordinators. While we were conference coordinators, we were master guides together. Uh, we had a group, uh, about 30 Pathfinder counselors. We were teaching them about uh, camping. Well, both my husband and I loved the wilderness and outdoors and camping, so we started talking to them about wild edible plants. And I went right outside uh, uh, the science complex there, and I picked wild onions, dandelions, clover, plantain, and we had 30-something people put it in a huge pot. The only thing I added was salt and fed it to them. They were so impressed because they saw me go pick it, and they were like, how can we learn this? This was in 1991. By 1992, we had started what we called a wilderness survival camping program, which was a four-phase program. And in that program, we just would invite people to go camping, and we would help them. And this was mostly Adventist, initially. We would help them at phase one. <coughs> we'd say, you can bring whatever you want without electronics. Phase two, you leave a few things. By phase three and four, it was no tents, uh, no sleep, well, sleeping bags, but no tents. They were sleeping under the canopy of the, the sky. We were adding edible plants in there, but it got so big that we started doing the edible plants all by itself. When I first started doing this, I uh, found out scientists said there were over 300,000 wild plants, edible, that we can eat. 90% uh, of that we can eat. And so when we found out the people were interested, this was um, in 1991. In 1997, we were rangers at what was a, a campground over 500 acres. The Lord blessed that it was virgin wilderness. And so my knowledge I had before, like, tripled because I could go out into the woods and just identify with all the books I had. Well, recently, unfortunately, they sold that land. And my question to the Lord was, Lord, you put all this in my head. I have like 300 books on herbs and stuff, and I actually told my husband I was going to burn them because it was in my head, and, you know, seeing the books was just like killing me because I, I didn't feel that I could share it with anyone anymore. And, you know, the Lord slowly began to just share with us, I still have work for you. And believe it or not, he took us, and we're still doing it, into the backwoods of Tennessee, up in the mountains, and we're teaching, and I'm telling you, preppers. Preppers are coming to us, and we're talking gun-toting. We've seen them one time, a, a truckload of ammunition. These are serious preppers. When they find out the knowledge that we have on wild edible plants, because they, you know, they got all the other stuff, but they have no idea what to eat. And so they're coming to us, and our cry to my husband and I is like, Lord, where are our people? Where are the Adventists? This is something we need to know. And this food is free. Not only is it good for you, uh, this wild edible plant has more nutritional value than anything you can buy in the store. Not only is it good for you, it's medicinal. There's a plant that grows in this area, and I'm going to say it, and I'm going to leave that alone, a blood root that literally goes into the body and looks for abnormal cells and kills it. 
Okay, so we have the food we need, it's free. We have the medicine we need, it's free. But we have got to learn it. And the last thing the Lord did, not the last thing, but one of the things he did recently was had us teaching, we do seminars all over, had us teaching Amish. And we were like, Lord, Amish? <laughs> but believe it or not, what they told us was, oh, was they do not, they only allow the elders in the Amish to, to learn this knowledge. They don't tell it to everybody. And so this is something, this is an avenue that we have not touched hardly. But it's a lot of food. There's plenty of food. Even this time, I've been out here looking at food all over the ground, in the trees. We just have to learn it. Thank you. Would you be willing to share some way that people can get in contact with you to uh, help them? Well, let me give you um, uh, the website. But the best way actually would be uh, email. The email is um, outdoor education. No, outdoor. Wait a minute. I'm getting mixed up with that. Okay, website is www.outdoor-ed.org. I repeat it again, www.outdoor-ed.org. Email is, and I've gotten nervous here. You know my email? <laughs> oh, okay, I got it. O-D-E, O is in octopus, D is in dog, E is in elephant, dot, W as in wilderness, S as in survival, C as in camping, at gmail.com. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she, she knows the roots and the berries and the nuts also. Would you like to present that? Sure. Okay. The average American eats about 2,000 pounds of food a year. A decent garden produces a pound of produce per square foot. You do the math, figure out how big of an area you need. And a good friend of mine is one of the leading uh, wild edible foods gourmet cooks in the country, studied under Linda Runyon, who survived and supported her family after all their food nearly froze in the can, canning root cellar up in New England. And she prayed about it, and the Lord gave her this thought, eat the trees. And in addition to her wild edible food book, she, uh, she wrote the book, Eat the Trees. So there is a lot of food out there to be eaten, and I'd recommend that book to you. Can you repeat that figure? 2,000 pounds per square, 2,000 pounds per year. One pound per square foot, grown in a garden, usually. You can see a little bit now that one of the preparations for this time that's coming is to change your diet. Change your diet to things that are actually more nutritional, where the phytonutrient content is so high that you won't like the taste of it because we have been accustomed to a bland diet. Um, for instance, the, uh, the, the, the almond, uh, some almonds have a stronger almond taste, but that strong almond taste is vitamin B17, amygdalin, the anti-cancer vitamin. And so we don't like that strong 
taste. And that's the way it is with most of the foods we eat today. The strong tastes in these foods are the increase in phytonutrients. So we really need to start practicing eating things that are wild, that have more of the wildness still in it. I'm just trying to think orientation-wise as I take all this in. I think there's some... You asked the question, what is the priority? And I'm a fledgling gardener, but I've been a preacher for years, you know, self-taught mainly. So the Word of God is where everything comes from, and the Word of God is where everything goes back to, right? And we were told, uh, the question I want to answer is your question, what is the priority? Uh, there's lots of survivalists out there. There's lots of preppers, as, as the lady was talking about, you know. Um, but what is their priority? It's survival. Our priority is not survival. I mean, Christ said, take up your cross and follow me. But, but I think maybe this is what you meant, I don't know, but the question has been asked, so I have to attempt to answer it. The, the priority is, is that, before I answer it, let me do something else. Look at the Bible, and the church was delivered into the wilderness where God prepared a place for her. And we can study in history what that actually meant. And what it meant was they fled into wilderness areas and through self-sufficiency learned the plan of faith. What fa Self-sufficiency is part of faith because when you... It's, it's a deceptive word, self-sufficiency, but it's the English language and so we use it. But what it means is we're depending on God's system and God's way of learning. That's what Christian self-sufficiency is. And so look at the Irish Celts or the Waldensians or look at what Israel was supposed to do when God led them out of Egypt into the wilderness and gave them a promised land. And, you know, each family was to have land, right? Each family was to learn to grow their food. The Waldensians have to learn the same lesson. They have to learn in unideal situations to grow food in an alpine climate, sometimes very unideal, right? But you can go there today and you can see the brilliance of, that God taught them. And you were talking about this, brother, about how when you get in a tight situation, when you're willing to follow the Lord into a situation where you don't know what to do, that's the best situation to be in, right? Because then you get on your knees and you say, Lord, help. So the Lord has people who, like this lady who has, has the information. And we really don't ask, have to ask the question at all. I try to be short here. But we don't have to ask the question, can it be done? For one thing, you said, I can do all things through Christ. And for another thing, there are people who have been doing it for generations. Otherwise, we wouldn't exist. They didn't have the system that we depend on. So it's a no-brainer to ask, can it be done? Of course it can be done. The human race would have gone extinct long before this. Could it not be done? It's, it's, we've been dumbed down to our society. We bought the lie that, well, if we buy into the system, we'll have more time for evangelism, right? And that's what we all did. We, you know, the, the, the toil and labor of, of the country living is too hard. We'll get our children to have degrees in college, and they get nice jobs, respectable jobs. And we bought the lie... And now as a people, we're illiterate as far as survival. Well, God is, is going to bring the necessity upon us to be able to survive again. So we can talk, you know, I know that the, the class is about growing food for the end times. But why do we grow food for the end times? And the answer is so that we can give the three angels message for a period of time before the close of probation. So that's the priority. And God, do you think God knows what, how to do that? Of course he does. So the information, those ladies like this lady have been blessed. The information's there. If we network, we can get it to one another. But the priority is not to be preppers in the sense that the world has preppers, but so that we can subsist 
just our bread and water is all we need and give the three angels message right and learn by faith and be taught by the wilderness god's wilderness and i can assure you it can be done i've learned in the, in the lives i'll finish with this I, I was a college professor in the academia that we have chased after of the world and our major schools have done that we've gone after their model of academia and i finally got fed up with it and i said i need to become the student <laughs> i moved to the country with my family after reading the book education and I was given 20 acres of land. I'd never built anything that could stand a wind, you know. And I asked the Lord, how am I going to build a house? I don't have money. And he said, there's treasure in the woods. And the Lord started showing me how to use the woods to build my house. And now I chopped all the trees down and put them back up. And now it's a house, you know. <laughs> it's very simple. But you do what you have to in a situation. And the Lord teaches you. And as long as we're willing to be learners, God already has the treasures this lady and other people who have the information, if we're brothers and sisters, we can share. So, so the priority is to give the three angels message and to be self-dependent so that we can do so. And we, we also need to realize that the three angels message is to come out of Babylon. What is this Babylon we're to come out of? It's also besides what... Stephen Haskell says in his book on Daniel the prophet, which Sister White told him to write because he best understood Daniel the prophet, that it was religion, it was an education. And we just heard a little bit about that education. And it was a government. We just uh, listened to uh, uh, Mr. Steed, who is the editor for the Liberty Magazine. He came to visit our area up there. And the government is, he considers the American government today on par with the Gestapo in Nazi Germany and the KGB in Russia. It is equal, on par, with the same amount of strength, and it's using those, those tactics now, it's particularly right now, this very moment in the West. People are too independent there, and so they're, they're breaking them down, attacking their homes and things like that, which we hear nothing, nothing about. And so... God wants us to come out of Babylon, that form of government, that type of education that teaches us we can't provide for ourselves, as well as this false uh, doctrine. But another thing that we need to consider about coming out of Babylon, this giving this three angels message, is we have to demonstrate we believe it and come out. And so in order to do that, when we see in Revelation 18, we see first in 17 the kings of the earth and their control of the earth. And we see that happen during the imperialist reign here in, in the world as the European nations took over and carved up the planet for themselves. But then we see a shift now in power in Revelation 18 to the merchants of the earth. You know how, how powerful Walmart is? It's powerful, more powerful than almost all the nations on earth. This is the merchants of the earth being spoken of. And so they have developed a system that we are so dependent upon for our food, shelter, and clothing. So this preparation that we're discussing here today is, is, actually expands a little wider than just what to grow. It's, it's a preparation for our, for our clothing supply. It's a preparation, as we just saw here, for our building needs. Uh, by the way, the house he, he built was straw bale and um, uh, wood post and beam structure. Cut off post and beamed off his own property. I built one on my property, post and beam structure. Cut the, the wood off my property. And, but mine isn't straw, but 
He's out here where there's straw, where there's prairies. I'm in the wood country, and so I have rocks. I told you how rocky. I don't know if I mentioned how rocky my soil is. I have to plant in rocks, so I built a stone house. So this coming out of Babylon, this giving the message, has to be demonstrated by us first. This is why we're discussing preparation for the time when you can't buy or sell. We have to show that we really believe this, and we made the preparations, and we're out there. Are there more uh, questions and or answers? Come on up. We've talked about water. We've talked about land. You kind of mentioned a little bit about seeds. So if we are collecting seeds, how long will they last us? We can put them in storage. Some say 10 years, some say 20 years. What's the actual truth on that? Someone want to answer that? Okay, and what's your email? Let me try to do it. It's uh, M-A, here, you do it. And I'll give you uh, charts to that effect and how many years for what kind of seed and how to save your seeds. Mark Heisey, M-A-R-K-H-E-I-S-E-Y, gmail.com. Uh, can you do that again, you're not from Pennsylvania, are you? Yeah, that's where they all live, nearly. H-E-I-S-E-Y at gmail.com. two questions. One is um, what types or um, varieties of foods, of plants that um, you have grown or that you know about that are good to grow for the last days. And another um, thing is tips that you have learned about how to garden without fuel, um, whether it's electricity for irrigation or, you know, manual methods, whatever tips that you can share, and I'll share one that we've learned is, um, it's common knowledge, but uh, the Ellen White fruit tree method, we planted trees this year, and we don't have a well yet where we're in a waiting line until they can come to our place, but um, we planted the trees and, you know, very deep, deeply loosened soil and everything, and uh, we mulched them very well. And we had a drought in Oklahoma. This summer, we did not get very much rain at all. And uh, the nurserymen and everything, they really did not think that our trees would survive. And of course, we, were, we planted 28 trees, and it was just such a big investment, um, digging all of these holes by hand and everything. And um, But praise God, none of them died because of lack of water. And they're, I mean, some of them are, you know, quite tall. They were only planted this year, much taller than me. And um, we only watered them maybe five times 
and, and that was not in that was some before and after the drought. So during the drought time, and that was with just water that we hauled from our neighbor's place. So praise God for His methods, and um, please share what things you've learned. I'd like to add to that. When you're planting perennials like this, when they get their roots established down deep, they'll go down and find the water, and they'll be prepared for the dry when the dry times come. So it's important to get out to the country. It's not something you run out to and try to grow annuals to survive for a while. Perennials are very important. It's a lifestyle God is calling his people to. A lifestyle that demonstrates that they're not willing anymore to be dependent upon the merchants of the earth and the commodities that they provide for them. Um, we read about that in Revelation 18, the list of commodities, I think it's verses 13 and 14, that are controlled there. So we want to make the preparation of being out there initially, planting the perennials, letting the roots go down deep, and they're prepared. Another thing for uh, seeds is we want to, and I, I said this before, but I'll say it again, we want to get varieties that do well in our area. It's not a matter of, I like this variety, I want to plant it. It tasted good when I bought it from the supermarket. It is what grows well in your area because they have adapted themselves to the climate. They can handle it. You know, um, for instance, uh, bean plants, they will, when the sun gets too, too hot, instead of being down catching the sunlight, they'll turn upward. If it's too hot for a corn leaf, it'll roll up. You know, if a squash leaf, it is too hot for the squash leaf, it hangs down like an enclosed umbrella. You know, these, these are adaptable characteristics that exist in varieties. And so if we want the genes turned on for the, most, uh, for the greatest ability to survive in our climate, under whatever that climate will dish out, we need to be finding the varieties that do well where we are. These are all ways of preparation. And, of course, the wild things, the weeds, they do fantastic. They, they know how to just do it no matter what. More questions and, or answers? Um, just an answer to your question. I haven't grown it yet, but I've been interested in growing sorghum because there's no GMO issue with it. And this year we had some sugarcane-type sorghum, and the heads, we rolled them on a grate, and the kernels come off amazingly easily. And we're still trying to figure out how to thresh it. Um, but we did end up, we painstakingly threshed the stuff we had. We hadn't dried, let me back up, we hadn't dried it before we tried to thresh it. So I think that might have been the problem, why it didn't thresh easily. No, I should say, yeah, we didn't dry it before we threshed it. And we had no problem threshing it, but we had a hard time winnowing it. And so we painstakingly went out a little bit of it. Um, and it's really good. Tastes good. You don't have to grind it or anything. We just cooked it like a cereal. Um, so I'd be curious if anyone else has tried that. An answer to the question that I was asked, how much, ten, how much land do you need to raise food for your family? I'm going to tell you two short stories. One, 
I have a, a friend and his wife living in California. And they planted two tomato plants. And they counted at least 120 tomatoes per plant. Have you heard about that before? Yeah, they had enough to eat themselves, so they gave away. My friend got a full box of tomatoes, and other people do. You'll be amazed how much food you can raise in a small uh, plot if the soil is prepared well. I had uh, my first planting in Arkansas when I moved from California. I had a little plot, probably 100 square feet of area. I plant melons. I've got over 300 melons, and none of them were under 15 pounds apiece. Huge. I gave to my neighbors, I gave to the church people, I gave to the friends. I had a, the reason that I was able to raise so well in, in Arkansas, soil is not that great for gardening, as they can tell because they, they live in Arkansas too. Um, I've learned from my friends what they do with their garden. On fall, they put about that much alfalfa hay in the ground, and in spring, they turn it on. And that's what I did. I got alfalfa from the feed store in town. They, a lot of, uh, they had a lot of loose uh, bales, so they just swept it, swept it outside and I asked them if I can buy this, you can have it all. I rented a U-Haul truck, I brought them in, I put it on the ground and I plant my melons. So it's amazing when you ask the Lord to bless, and I want to mention this because we're mentioning, I kneel down and I pray before I plant it. God is able to bless. Thank you. Uh, I had grown sorghum one year um, when I was in my 20s, but uh, it's very labor-intensive. I don't think I'd recommend that. It's very labor-intensive. You know, well, we, uh, you know, we, 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 we grew it, <clears throat> just cut it with a corn knife, and, and we'd put it through a sorghum press, you know, uh, horse-drawn sorghum press, and then then you have all the, the fluid, and then you have to you have to build a you have to build a fireplace, get fire going, and then you have to boil it down 40 to one to get your sorghum. That takes all day long, you know, you know, with big vats, you know, and then and then we would put it, you know, bottle it and put it in bottles, and we sold it in the health food store locally. But it was a lot of labor. Oh, you're talking about the heads. Oh, I see. So the fellow who talked about sorghum before, he was talking about grain sorghum and how good it tasted and how easy he found it was to grow. Okay, do we have uh, more questions or... Answers to some of the questions that have been come up here. Or you? Oh. Both of you. One and then two. I just want to say uh, I'm very thankful some of you have been in the soil health class. Uh, for those that have not, um, what was very good for me to know um, is that what I found out is that um, all the, what's really important is do have a soil test done on your soil because uh, our the earth is waxing old. The soil is not as good as it used to be when God first created it. So uh, 
And uh, all the labs do not do a good job, so the best place to do that is the Kinsey Lab, according to the instructor. That's it. And you can find out some information from them at K-I-N-S-E-Y-A-G.com. And uh, they will not only do the proper job on testing your soil, but they will, <clears throat> they will tell you what you need to put on so you don't have to figure out all those chemicals and minerals and things that... Uh, that is very complicated. Uh, <clears throat> so if you get your soil right, it's going to resist disease. It's going to be very uh, fruitful, and you will need less space to farm and, and, and garden. So, I'd just like to uh, address that thought about um, getting the soil tests and finding out what you need. Um, that's that... Uh, I've done for years and, and did do soil testing myself and put the amendments in. Uh, but a new way of preparing the soil without having to buy amendments is developing. And, you know, anything, there's nothing new under the sun, so it's really not new. Uh, Dr. Elaine Ingram, a microbiologist from uh, Oregon State, um, was studying the microbes that produce the fertilizers that feed the plant and was learning about them such that she could teach farmers how not to have to buy any fertilizers and to be able to grow crops that were so healthy that there was no sickness to those crops. Well, of course, she didn't last long uh, in uh, the university, and so she went out her own and started an international uh, company teaching farmers all over the world how to adjust their soil with compost and compost tea to increase the microbes that fertilize the soil. She's now president of Rodale. Uh, and to answer my own question that I asked initially, who fertilized the prairies and the forests and all these lands? This was all done microbially. You see, God has designed microbes to fertilize a plant. And the plant has to be genetically designed and not adjusted by selecting seed that has grown on chemicals fertilizers that have been provided for generations because that seed will adapt to those chemical fertilizers and will no longer be uh, have its genes turned on for fertilizing, um, not fertilizing, but feeding the microbes in the soil that will provide for it the fertilizers that it needs. And so one of the things with saving your own seed is you're adjusting them to your soil and you're adjusting them to feed the microbes that are in your soil that will feed the fertilizer to the plants. Now, this is not new. Um, Sister White talked about using microbes at the turn of the century. F.H. Uh, King uh, wrote in his book, uh, Farmers of Forty Centuries. He was a, an agronomist from the University of Wisconsin, and he visited China, Korea, and Japan in 1906. 
and wrote this book in 1908, Farmers of 40 Centuries, telling about how the Orientals used microbes to do all the fertility that they needed in their soil. Um, there is a, a book that just came out, uh, just I saw it this summer in the Acres USA bookstore, and it was entitled The Way to Ultra-Low-Cost Agriculture. And this is put out by the president of a 40,000 farmer organization in Korea. And what he does is he teaches the Koreans to go back to the old ways of farming to grow all their own microbes, grow their microbes to uh, fertilize the plant, grow their microbes to... Um, fertilize the leaves of the plant. In other words, they use them for problems that develop on the plant itself, and they, you just add, spray on these, or pour on these uh, microbial uh, things that you, that you, batches of things that you make up. So the way that, that God's fertility has been through the centuries is all microbial. And when we attempt to adjust the uh, soil to what we think is best with our fertilization programs, uh, how can we improve upon God's program? We can get better and better at it. Matter of fact, we can get so good that we're better than what's being produced in the supermarket. But is that... God's way to fertility. He has demonstrated how to fertilize and that is through the microbes that are in the soil. And the, I'll repeat again, the most important thing for these microbes in the soil to produce all the fertility that the plant needs is you must have a plant that will feed them. For instance, um, the uh, high mowing uh, Organic seed, uh, I think it's Vermont, um, was wrote up in there how when you use organic seed, that organic seed that they have has been generation after generation, hopefully, it has a few generations under its belt, has been feeding these microbes in the soil that provide them the nitrogen that they need the algae in the soil and the bacteria in the soil that take the nitrogen out of the air. You have 35,000 pounds of nitrogen over every square foot of soil. The air is, what, 70%, uh, 78% nitrogen? And so there's no shortage of nitrogen, but it's a very important uh, element for, for crop growth. And so you must have a plant that... Um, takes its energy and gives it into the soil. Now, the epigenetic switches have to be on for it to do that, but if you are buying seed and using seed that has come from crops that have been raised with uh, nitrogen fertilizers, and, and that could even mean, you know, manures, um, you have turned off those switches because they don't need to feed those microbes that provide them nitrogen free because you have always been hauling the manure in or hauling the 
petrochemical nitrogen fertilizer in, and so they flicked off the switches. So when you have this organic seed, and especially if it has a few generations being organic, it has the switches turned on to feed the algae and the nitrogen-fixing bacteria in the soil. So this is some of the preparations we need is to have crops that grow well, not just in adaptation to the climate that we have, but to feeding the microbes in the soil the energy, because they manufacture energy taking sunlight and they make the energy that these microbes need because um, the bacteria in the soil can't uh, manufacture carbohydrates, and so the plants produce the carbohydrates to feed all of planet Earth, uh, every living thing, and so they need to be able to be feeding them. And so that's a system that you want to be establishing in your own garden. You want to be backing off of the fertilizers that you're using to grow your crops. You may be organic and thinking that's the way it should be, but in a pristine environment, there are no water-soluble fertilizers. It's like the only water-soluble fertilizer that exists in a pristine environment is the manure and the urine from the animals. But God's design is that the dung beetle will take an elephant pile and within two hours have it all buried away as food for the, uh, for the young dung beetles. And which then, when it exudes things into the soil, that's food for other critters that exude things into the soil, down to the smallest, which feed the plants. So we want to wean ourselves off of all the fertilizers that we are using and see, be selecting seed every year that does the best in our garden. Because each year we're going to be changing our seed. Because only, um, there's, a, there's a myth that we've almost all accepted, and that is that, uh, I'll have to use this word because we're familiar with it, that evolution takes a long period of time. Evolution is rapid, very, very rapid. Changes are rapid. For instance, a cockroach, when it goes into a lava tube, within three generations will stop producing eyes. The epigenetic switch will turn off, they do not need it. How long does it take a cockroach to reproduce? Let's say two weeks, let's say a month, three generations, six months, it's not producing eyes? That's rapid change. Evolution is rapid. Microbes with a lifespan of 20 minutes, how many generations does that take? One hour for changes to occur? Elaine Ingham says that when your soils, she teaches the farmers, when you learn to make the compost or apply the compost teas to your soil, within three days, you'll change the whole microbial situation over in your soil, and they will begin to start feeding the plant what it needs. So these things are rapid. This is not slow stuff that we say, well, you know, someday, you know, we just don't have the time. Jesus is coming soon. Um, no, these are things we should be out there doing, and they do occur rapidly. So we need to consider the very seeds themselves, 
being adapted not only to climate, but to our soil and the microbes in the soil that they begin to be feeding them. So we have to back off our fertility. Back off and back off. And at the same time, keep every year selecting the seed that do best as we back off. Because they are better adapted. And then keep replanting them, changing them. And, and these things are fast. Even for trees, I was very surprised this year. Uh, Bob Jorgensen had suggested if we want, um, someone had told him, a peach grower, that if we want uh, fruit trees free from disease, which is what Sister White said God's people were to do. She says that in commentary 7a on Leviticus 25, that we were to teach the world how to grow fruit free from disease. That if we select, um, we grow the seed of our trees, of the peaches. I selected some peach seed that grew well. And, and did well. Others did very poorly. The, the, there wasn't good sugar content to them. Uh, they had different problems. Uh, the brown rot was, was bad, uh, quite bad in some. And these had the, the best characteristics. I took all the seed, put it out. Then I planted the next year, one year later. only took one year from putting the seed in the ground in August after I ate the peaches. They come up again, and then that September or October, one year later, I dig them up, and I planted out about 75. And so um, three growing seasons later, I had 40 of them produce fruit, and it surprised me. All 40 of those peaches had better brown rot resistance than the approximately 30 varieties of nursery stock peaches I had bought. That quick, it changes. And two of the trees had almost no brown rot. So we, we need to be, through seed selection, finding the best quality. And, and we can quickly uh, start changing things. You know, I, I, Bob had suggested that uh, Cornell will give you free grape starts, and I was growing different grapes. And so I contacted them for black rot resistant grapes, because black rot is the worst scourge on grapes from the prairies to the Atlantic. And they say, well, you can't grow a crop without uh, having to spray because of the black rot. And so um, they'll give you 25 sticks, and you can, uh, if you're doing experimentation. And so I asked for them, and they, all I, got, I only got eight that were black rot resistant. I said, how come the, you, you, this is a scourge of the grapes? Why aren't there many? I said, we spray everything anyways. They don't know what has disease resistance. None of the universities, none of the nursery companies know what has disease resistance. They are not checking for it. They are spraying anyway. It's up to us to grow these things without sprays, whether organic sprays or chemical sprays, to find disease resistance. And then we'll have plants that grow free from disease. And then we are to teach the world, we're told in commentary 7a on Leviticus 25. So this is something to bear in mind for seeds. Does anyone have any questions? Yes, come on up. I had a question about what you mentioned, but first I just wanted to share a couple things. Maybe these are obvious, but um, as far as a source of starch or grains, um, we've been growing some red corn that we got from Bob Jorgensen that grows very well in Oklahoma, and it's very easy to grow, no, no bugs get it. Have we sprayed it or anything? 
We have not spread it at all. It's not sweet corn. It's just a field corn that you can grind up for cornmeal. I haven't cooked it yet because we've been saving it for seed. But we've been growing that just to practice, not enough for us to really live off of. But um, has anyone gotten that, and does anyone know what kind it is? It's a red field corn from Bob Jorgensen. Um, Bob had told me he thinks it was Bloody Butcher. And uh, it was, they got it from the Indians in the area. And he brought it to the uh, University of North Carolina, had it tested for protein content. It was five times higher than normal. So this is what the old grains have. They have uh, plenty of protein in, the, in them, uh, plenty of other nutrients too. I just remembered the five times the protein. But there was a lot of other high levels of nutrients in this corn, that red Thanks, corn. God. What a blessing. And then um, also sweet potatoes and butternut squash. They're not a grain, but they have a lot of starch. I know the Madison School, they, um, in the early days, ate a lot of butternut squash, right? Anyway, they survived on squash over the winter. So if you don't have a grain like rice or wheat or whatever, you could grow butternut, uh, some kind of squash, winter squash, and sweet potatoes or potatoes. And then for, uh, of course, nut trees take a long time to grow, but peanuts and sunflower seeds can be grown. They're annuals. So. And um, also purple hole peas is something, at least in our area, southeast Oklahoma, that grows extremely well and very easily for a source of uh, purple hole peas. Um, they're, not, they're not the same as black-eyed peas. They're very delicious. Purple, uh-huh, H-U-L-L, peas. They're similar to black-eyed peas. And you can, you can pick them green and, and cook them after you shell them, or you can just, and they'll keep producing a lot, or you can just let them dry out on the vines and then harvest them. Um, anyway, and my question about what you mentioned, sir, was um, about feeding and fertilizing and manures. If you um, compost manure down and so that everything eats it and breaks it down and then feed it, is that at the, I'm not sure of all the technical things, but is that feeding the microbes or is, so that switch that you're talking about goes on or is that the same as just? Elaine Ingham um, gives you enough information to know that, for instance, she tells, say if it's a tomato grower, they, you want a ratio of about one to six bacterial to fungal, but she doesn't let on. You have to go uh, buy into the food web information. Then they will give you the information on what these ratios are and how to make the compost for your different specific crops. Because uh, what they do when they balance the soil for these crops with the compost and the microbial populations, the plants outgrow the weeds. So it's, it's because weeds, most soils are such that they're designed specifically for weed growth. So she alters the microbial population so they become designed for the particular crop that you're growing. Now, the, um, the last person up here just told us about how at Madison they ate a lot of squash, that that was something they could go through the winter on. I just wanted to bring to your attention something I learned recently. Um, seeds of change uh, I think one of the starters was Alan Kapooler, and he was a researcher, a PhD researcher in um, free amino acids. And what 
he, I learned through, I went and, and, and asked, uh, requested his research papers and he sent them to me. But we think that many plants are not do not have enough protein in them, so we have to go eat our grain and beans if we want to get enough protein. That's not so at all. We cannot use protein, right? We can only use the amino acids that protein is broken down into. In the measurement of plants for what's in them, all we have measured up until the 1990s was the protein content in which case we figured that is where we get our amino acids. It wasn't considered until then that there are free amino acids, that the plant is loaded with free amino acids. I had uh, uh, a friend of mine, um, she's a, an MD, her husband's an MD, but her husband uh, grew up in a village in Papua New Guinea. And so he would say, I just want fruits and vegetables and roots. Because I grew up on that. And she'd say, you can't get your protein. She's an American, you know. And she's been brainwashed. You've got to get your protein. And he's saying, I don't need it. And he's strong. He worked his way through medical school and construction. So he's not a weakling. So he keeps telling her this when she found out that there were free amino acids that finally answered the question for her. How could her husband be getting all the protein he need and the whole village getting all the protein they need when they're not getting their grain and beans? The squashes that Madison ate through the wintertime, the sweet potatoes, the, even the white potato, which they say is so low in protein. Now, I'm not saying there aren't white potatoes that are so low in protein. There are. There are ones that I wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole grown in Wisconsin. My sons work there, and when they grow those potatoes there, uh, the, the, uh, they, they were vi visiting their friend who's a farmer there, and they all know when the planes fly over to spray the potatoes, you run. Get your car out of there because that, those chemicals will even eat the paint on your car. This is the way they grow these potatoes. So I'm not saying there aren't potatoes with no, hardly any protein in them and hardly anything else in them, too. I'm just saying the potato, when grown naturally, in a natural environment where the microbes are being fed by the potato, will produce enormous amounts of protein, plenty of protein. I remember first hearing about a lady whose diet... Uh, was she had so many problems that the only thing she was really subsisting on was potatoes as her main staple food. The rest was just fruits and vegetables, and she'd been that way a year and a half, and I'm saying, how can that be? Well, it was finally answered years later when I came to realize that there are free amino acids, but it's interesting that that, cert, that research never was spread about. I, I think it has something to do with the meat and milk industry, uh, wanting to keep people to think they can't get enough protein unless they use meat and milk. So changes in our diet are very important and understanding how to grow the plant. So these changes uh, in our diet can occur and we can be nice and healthy. So many things, Milda. Uh, first one I want to share with the, with the seed thing. That, uh, 10 or 12, 15 years ago, when we got a backyard seed, I saved the, the uh, yeah, tomato. 
two years ago when they get that all kinds of seed, not tomato seed, I didn't get that time. That 15 years ago, uh, 15, 13, 14, Anyway, 2010, uh, two, three, uh, and uh, I, when we were in our country, we plant the heirloom seed, the all different colors, and the brandy wines, black cream, all this stuff. That seed, you know, I, in a paper towel, I put in a paper towel to dry up. That I didn't even in a pack the dry up. I didn't even uh, take care of very well. But it's when we we travel around, we move around, we went to Pennsylvania and then California almost a nine year. Come back and last year and this year I planted that seed. That seed those tomato I had that can survive. And then the garden that we had, my husband didn't want to put any chemical, nothing. What he did, all the malts under the tree, all the you know, all the all the lots of tree under the tree, all the mulch she bring the put in our garden. This is the garden. This squash, this squash of pumpkins are so big, that big, They're so heavy. I have a bunch of them there and uh, grown and uh, God has blessed us so much. All that these are so big, so big. I can't even pick it. Even my husband have to roll it, roll it, and uh, it's so heavy. God, you know. Is that if you have a right soil, right nutrients, they can give that. And uh, this is, I don't know, this kind of, not the butternut. Uh, it's just, it's so big and it's a good flavor. So it's, I know, it's just, I don't remember the name, but it's just, uh, and uh, even uh, like a, with the protein, I'd be wary about that. Think about the cow and the elephant. What they eat? Only grass. Green grass and plants have, all the plants have a protein, sort of protein. Eat, and uh, if elephant can so big and eating uh, just under trees and plant, we can survive. And God, and at the beginning, God had, and uh, didn't give us meat to uh, the protein. Have a fruits and uh, Nuts and all this stuff, uh, at uh, fruit of the tree in Garden of Eden. So. Well, thank you very thank much. You. Yeah. It's uh, 3.45 and our, our time is up. I hope this has been helpful and give you some things to think about and some things to do. Let's close with prayer. Lord, you're the only one that can guide us in these changes. Changes in diet, the things that are better for us to eat. Lord, changes in the way we grow things. Lord, you know and understand your design, obviously. But Lord, we need to ask you what we should be doing. So Lord, please help us to, to ask you before we do anything where we should begin and how to proceed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.